This is Wynne Grant from the Department of Politics and International Studies at Warwick. With me today is Cathy Jo Martin from the Department of Political Science at Boston University. She's also Chair of the Council of European Studies. She was here for the joint Boston-Warwick workshop on the aftermath of the global financial crisis last December. The fact that she is back again is illustrative of how the relationship between the two universities is developing. This time she is here as an Institute of Advanced Studies Fellow and she has been working in the Modern Records Centre on the Federation of British Industries Archive for a book she is writing. Could you tell us something about this book? Uh, yes, certainly. First of all, thank you so much for inviting me today and more broadly for inviting me to work. It's delightful to be back. Um, the book, in fact, concerns transitions in capitalism at two junctures. The first is the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, and that's the work that I'm working on now. The second is the transition from industrial capitalism to the post-industrial economy, and that's the, the, the topic that I addressed when I was at Warwick in December. And I'd like to actually start with the second project because I, I think that gives a better overview of the entire um, project. The main question for me is, in the wake of the financial crisis and possibly the end of financial capitalism, many questions evolve about which countries best survive the current crisis and are capable of making a transition to the next order. Uh, the central argument of my book is that high levels of coordination in a large state are essential to these processes. Now, this is a somewhat counterintuitive argument. In fact, the large state and coordination are an anathema to rampant neoliberals. Uh, this has been um, um, a period in the last 40 years in which we've questioned coordination, we've questioned big government spending, but neoliberalism hasn't really worked very well, has it? So I suggest that it's time to look to other experiments. If you look to Scandinavia, for example, the very things that might predict gloom and doom are in fact carrying the Danes through the crisis with flying colors. Uh, first on the employment front, the Danes have had massive levels of high unemployment in the 60s and 70s, which they then fixed quite nicely, thank you, um, going from the sick man of Europe to a, a high flyer in employment, and they managed to create high levels of employment with high levels of social solidarity and equality. Um, now, how has that happened? Well, their efforts to roll back the dole, as it were, um, have been carried out in a way that cured the problem rather than simply dumped the marginal workers into the trash bin. So they created active labor market policies that really worked. They created, created active labor market policies that were a sort of win-win solution where the state invested high levels of training into individuals. They helped individuals to find their spot in firms, in real firms. They convinced business to go along with these projects. And consequently, the Danes have created a labor market which has incorporated many of the people who might be left out in other countries such as Europe, uh, such as Britain, for example. Um, they've had the same sort of response to the financial crisis. The financial crisis was created as a straitjacket for social investments, certainly all over the world, um, and the magnitude of public um, uh, spending, in fact, 
um, has been called into question. The British bailout pre was predicted to reach something on the order of 12% of the GDP. Um, and so what you've seen in a lot of countries is an effort to roll back the state at precisely a time when one might argue that it's necessary to try to carry us through by investing in uh, the long-term unemployed and making sure that people don't drop out of the labor market. Most coordinated countries with large states are doing quite better, surviving the storm much better, so that the Danes immediately guaranteed all of their assets. They strengthened cooperation. They kept the economy on track. They realized it wasn't the time to cut spending a la Hoover in the United States in 1929, and they're managing to do very nicely. So the, the main question of the book, then, is how to persuade employers to go along with this rather unusual set of policy prescriptions. Well, there's a tremendous amount there that we can talk about. <laughs> I mean, maybe we could just start to talk a little bit about um, active labor market policy, which you referred to. Now, the United Kingdom has tried to pursue a more active labor market policy, albeit combined with an emphasis on uh, flexibility of labor. But that hasn't worked particularly well uh, in relation to the least skilled portion of the population who have been particularly affected by trends towards globalisation. A few weeks ago, the BBC had a television programme called The Whiz Beach Experiment, where they looked at this uh, location in eastern England where there's a lot of employment in horticulture and in processing horticultural products. And they tried to get some people who'd been in long-term unemployment into work and what they found of course was that they were not very effective at working particularly in relation to the large number of immigrants from Eastern Europe in that area. I mean is there anything we can learn from countries like Denmark about how to have a more effective active labour market policy? I would say absolutely and in fact one of the things that I did as part of this book is I took a random sample of employers in Denmark and Great Britain I actually interviewed 107 firms, which was uh, quite a tall order for someone who already had tenure. I had, I wondered at times if um, this was really quite sensible. Um, there were points in the process of getting to these firms that I, my transportation had to, had broken down, and I actually had to hitchhike to companies. Uh, so it was a it was a tall order. Uh, going all over these two countries to visit corporate headquarters. But what I found was that the programs, while virtually identical on paper, were implemented in fundamentally different ways. And um, the responses by employers to these programs were fundamentally different. So in Denmark, first of all, the Danish Employer Association, uh, which is very, very strong in Denmark, had an enormous role in constructing the details of the programs. So business, labor, and the state sat down together and they tried to develop programs in which employers really could participate and programs that could be implemented in a practical, sensible way. In the UK, the programs were developed largely by uh, government bureaucrats with some uh, business input certainly, but uh, at the local level in particular there wasn't the same kind of effort to develop programs that would be practical to employers' needs. The second thing that happened is that the Danes created a person within the municipality 
called the firm consultant who would go to the firms and say to the firms what kind of jobs do you have that we can fill with the long-term unemployed and they talked through various options there were a couple of different kinds of long-term unemployed one uh, consisted of disabled individuals and here the um, the um, company social worker um, I mean, the, I'm sorry, the uh, municipal worker, who was in fact something like a social worker, um, talked to the firm about each particular client, and the firm figured out that it had needs such as Xeroxing and working in the canteens and all kinds of jobs that firms had largely eliminated in the race to become more lean and mean in global competition. And they said, actually, we could use such a person. And so a deal was made in which the municipality would pay half of the person's wage, the firm would pay the other half of the person's wage, the individual in question would get a living wage, but the firm would get low-cost workers because they were only paying half the wage, and the uh, municipality would only have to pay half the welfare state welfare support because the firm paid the other half. And so it was a real win-win situation. Now another part of this for regular long-term unemployed people was that a lot of training was invested in these individuals. And the Danish, um, the Danish municipalities tried very hard to figure out precisely what kinds of attributes these individuals had, what kind of training was necessary, and invested quite a bit at the beginning in startup costs to get people trained in a meaningful way. Of course, one difference between Denmark and Britain is that Denmark spends more in training in general, and so the skills levels of the Danish population uh, are in, in fact quite higher to begin with. Nonetheless, they've had a problem in the past with about um, some, something on the order of 15% of very low-skilled workers, and these people were the real targets of these programs. And so I would say that the lesson here is that if you have a coordinated business community who can, um, who can identify very clear goals of what they need and you have a state that's very responsive to trying to meet those goals, you can really solve problems of unemployment in a much different way. Hmm. Now, now finally, I just want to add that the firms themselves who participated were quite different in the two countries. So in Britain, Companies who had been asked by Tony Blair to participate did so largely for political reasons. Uh, firms with a high level of uh, sales to the public sector were significantly more likely to participate. Uh, firms with very low-skilled workers were significantly more likely to participate. Whereas in Denmark, people participated largely for labor needs. So firms with a high sales uh, to the public sector were not significantly more likely to participate and ones with low-skilled workers also were not more likely to participate. Rather, people who participated participated simply because they needed new labor sources. I can see that um, effective employers associations are an important part of the story here. But there's a bit of chicken and egg about this, isn't there? Because, um, I mean, Britain is a country with a much more liberal tradition than Denmark, and although there have been people in the history of employers' associations in the UK who wanted to develop more of a partnership relationship um, with government, 
that generally hasn't worked out in the British case. Ah, so this is a great lead-in to the first part of my book, which is on the origins of these employer associations themselves. And I have been doing a study of uh, employer associations. This is both a quantitative cross-national study of advanced industrialized countries, as well as a case study based in the archives of uh, Britain, Denmark, the United States, and Germany to try to get a sense of why, at the end of the 19th century, some of these countries have developed these highly coordinated employer associations, while others have not. And I've come with some rather surprising uh, conclusions. Conclusion number one is that in all of the countries, the employers themselves wanted pretty much the exact same thing. This was a moment of, um, of rising industrial capitalism, rising global markets. Firms in every country wanted to have a better presence in international markets, and they wanted industrial development um, policies that would enable them to compete more effectively in these world markets. Uh, firms in all the countries wanted labor stability. They did not want their workers to start striking to prevent them from being able to uh, carry out this import-export strategy. And they wanted to protect themselves from imports from other aggressive uh, nations. So what did they do? Well, in, in every country, uh, they had endless discussions about coordination, uh, mainly at the industrial sector level. But the peak associations, the umbrella associations, the ones that covered the entire economy, all came from government bureaucrats in these countries. So that at some point, a government bureaucrat or party leader who was connected to a party sympathetic to business decided that what would work best is to have a, an employer association who could represent business and speak with one voice for the business community. For example, in Great Britain, the British Foreign Office, and in particular Boner Law and Arthur Steele Maitland, tried to organize uh, the Federation of British Industries, which was the precursor to the Confederation of British Industries, and they decided that the Federation of British Industries would help them gain political support for the project of industrial development that they thought was so necessary to the future of Britain. Now why was it then, if you had these significant experiments in Britain and the United States, uh, where the National Association of Manufacturers was developed by the McKinley administration for precisely the same reason, why is it that these did not succeed where you had such high levels of success in countries like Denmark and Sweden? And I argue that it all comes down to party politics, that if, in fact, the state bureaucrats are the ones who organize these business associations, it makes sense that the context in which they're struggling for political power, the political rules of the game, as it were, would matter to how the, these employer associations evolve. And party politics matter in a couple of ways. First of all, in countries with two parties, uh, employers tend to be distributed across the parties. This is certainly the case in Britain in the 1890s. You have employers both in the Liberal Party 
as well as in the conservative party. Uh, in the United States, you have uh, many employers in the Republican Party, but employers in the South and West in the Democratic Party. So the employers do not have a dedicated party home, and that makes it difficult for the political parties to nurture a business voice, a unified business voice. The second thing is, uh, in, in a, uh, I'm sorry, in a multi-party system, uh, quite the opposite happens. You're much more likely to get a dedicated business party that has interests very different from the farmers or the workers, who tend to be the other two major parties. And these, this dedicated business party works hard to overcome the sectional disputes over trade issues, etc., that divide employers elsewhere. The other thing that happens in a multi-party system with three or more parties is that they fear that a center-left coalition will be formed against them. So that uh, in the case of Denmark, there was a great fear that the farmers and the workers would form a coalition against the employers and would implement all kinds of reforms against employer interests. At the end of the day, what was quite interesting uh, the Danish employers first tried to form a coalition with the farmers, the center party. This failed miserably for a bunch of reasons. Uh, at that point, they decided they would do better to form an alliance with the workers, not through the party system, but by creating these private channels for cooperation, these private employer associations and labor unions to carry out uh, public policy and implement self-regulation. And in this case, uh, uh, Danish corporatism was basically born. And so you got a system in which the political parties had enormous incentives to delegate power and authority making, uh, policy making, to the private channels. Um, after that, uh, Danish corporatism continued to be nurtured by the political party and down to the present day, many, many, many more decisions in Denmark are made through these private channels than through the parliamentary process. Well, I guess that might raise some issues about the uh, nature of democracy in different countries. I mean, clearly this is a very rich story, and it's one where you can see uh, a certain amount of path dependency from these decisions that were taken at this important transition point um, in the early part of the 20th century. If I could come back to what we were talking about earlier again, um, I mean, clearly, you know, Denmark has achieved a great deal in terms of training policy and in education policy more generally. But of course, one downside of this is that it costs a lot of money. And taxation um, as a percentage of GDP in Denmark is around the 50% level. And in the United Kingdom, it's around the 39% level. And I would think probably the preferences of voters in the UK would be to try and keep taxation at that level or possibly to reduce it. No, you're absolutely right. And, and again, you have very different logics at play. Uh, the first thing I would say is that uh, the Danish welfare state has amazingly been able to proceed because the multiplier effect is such that um, there, re there really isn't a big budget deficit. 
uh, you would think that there might be, that the fiscal crisis of the state might be a problem. But because you have such high levels of employment, um, especially female employment, you have a lot of people working to support uh, women working outside the home. Um, so the revenues are uh, uh, that come into government are quite high because so many people are working. So that's the first. The first side of the question is there really isn't a fiscal crisis of the state. They're they're not huge budget deficits. They're doing very well on that front. Now the second question, uh, taxation, and that's really a kind of a tricky question, and and one that I've spent a lot of time. Um, late at night over a bottle of wine with my Danish friends talking about who in fact has it worse, them or us. And if you live in Denmark, um, your situation is such that you do pay high taxes, but in return for that, you get completely free health care. You get universal, and by the way, their health care system, they spend more on health care than in Britain, and they're very happy with their health care system. Uh, you get completely uh, free, well, you get slightly, uh, you, you pay a very small amount, but you get almost free child care. And in America, you, you sometimes pay as much as $15,000 a year for preschool. Uh, you get completely free university education. Again, in America, uh, we're looking, we have two sons, we're looking to spend $400,000 for our son's education $50,000 a year uh, for four years each. I mean, that's a phenomenal amount. So um, so we're spending, uh, we're, we're saving copious amounts of money to try to prepare for this enormous financial burden. And um, many people in America now in the, even in the middle class, simply can't afford university education. Um, so there are a lot of things that the welfare state provides in Denmark that it doesn't provide in America, and you have a little bit more in Britain, but not as much as, as the Danes, and consequently public attitudes toward taxation are consistently more positive, ironically, in these Scandinavian countries than they are in the liberal countries. And I, and I think it's along this logic of you get what you pay for. Well, there's obviously an interesting balance of advantage and disadvantage there, and in part, I guess it's a question of what uh, you're used to. Well, we'll be coming back to Boston in September for another meeting of the group um, that met here in December, and we'll be able to pursue some of these issues of uh, cross-national comparison in the context of a world that is possibly changing in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. And I think here at Warwick, we're all looking forward to our visit to Boston in September. Well, thank you so much, and we're looking forward to it as well. And I just have to add that you've been a marvelous host. I've enjoyed Warwick so much and the Modern Record Center, where I'm looking at the formation of the Federation of British Industries, has been a, just a tremendous resource. So thank you so much for your warm hospitality. Well, thank you.